Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We are about halfway through now our New Year's series on the means of Grace. Another way to think about means of grace is means of growth. How do Christians grow? Good question for the new year. What does it look like and how do we do it? How do Christians grow? How do we go about making that happen? How do we grow in the Christian life? I've been making my way through a book recently. It's called Taking God Seriously. Not a bad idea book written by J.I. Packer, and I want to quote a little bit from this book, Taking God Seriously. Something approaching a third of the world's population, two billion people, are undernourished, and they go chronically hungry since where they live, food is regularly in short supply. So do these hungry people always feel hungry? Actually, no. Not only does absorption in other things keep hunger at bay for hours, as many of us experience, but it is unhappily possible to get used to never having enough so that our bodies begin to settle for always living below par. People go on living but their lives are characterized by a famine-fed apathy. Nor is famine the only cause of undernourishment. Extended periods of unbalanced diet lacking protein and calories can yield the same effects. Thus, even living in the midst of plenty, one can still waste away. And then he goes on, as the years go by, I am increasingly burdened by the sense that more and more conservative church people are, if not starving, at least significantly undernourished. And obviously he's speaking here about our biblical, spiritual diet. What are you eating? What's your intake? What's your biblical spirit, spiritual intake? Are you undernourished? I don't know if you've heard of the acronym STEM. S-T-E-M. It's kind of cool now. You can see it everywhere. Some of you know it, I know. I talked to a couple of people this morning. STEM, science, technology, engineering, 
mathematics. Many people will say that's what drives our culture. That's what drives our global economy. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And that's a good thing in many ways. Many of us make our livings, maybe most of us make our livings in something that's related to science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I'm a history major. People always say, what are you going to do with that? Well, uh, keep going to school, I guess. I'm a history major. Went to my undergrad training at the, the University of Texas is in, in history. And people will ask me some, from time to time, well, man, you're a history major. What period of history would you most like to live in? What's your favorite time of history? And I say, today. Are you kidding me? I like antibiotics. I like myself. We go on and on and on. You know what I'm saying. I want to live today. Thank you. Technology people, science people, engineering people, mathematics people. I can't do algebra. Thank you. But... (laughs) In our world, it's often the the first thing we tend to run to is STEM when we've got an issue in our culture, in our world. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics will not fix our greatest, deepest problems and needs. A few years ago, Cindy and I were visiting one of Cindy's best friends who lives in Grass Valley, the Grass Valley, Nevada City area of Northern California, beautiful place. And we were there down in Grass Valley one day, and all these vehicles started rolling into town, covered, I mean, covered with this thick, gritty, dark dust all over. And I I said, Chris, what's going on? Who are these people? And they were, they were everywhere. We had, we had arrived just as Burning Man was concluded. Now, if you don't know anything about Burning Man, look it up, find out about it, and then move on. It's, it, you don't follow Burning Man. Don't, don't eat Burning Man. Don't look to them for leadership. But here's what's fascinating about Burning Man. Science, technology engineering, mathematics people, in fact, cutting-edge people in those fields in Silicon Valley, once a year, go out in the desert and cut loose and try anything and everything. And then they come back, they wash their cars, put their nice clothes on, go back into their nice offices and begin their creativity all over again. Well, what that tells me, and many of them will recognize, it tells me they are hungry. It tells me that they are needy. In fact, uh, a Stanford professor who sort of made a, a living following these folks said this. He's right. I think Burning Man is to the contemporary tech world what the Protestant church used to be. 
In the 17th century, he goes on, the Puritans performed under what they thought was the eye of God. Today, burners dance for each other and each other's cameras. The Puritan God has fled the scene. All we have left is each other. But if you look at what they're actually doing, they're hungry for something, something that, that technology won't provide, engineering won't provide. They're starving. What's the answer? <laughs> the, answer, the answer is that thrilling term. I remember when I first heard it in seminary. The ordinary means of grace. Sounds initially pretty boring. I hope by the end of the sermon you don't think that way. The ordinary means of grace is what they need, what we need, what we are hungry for. In fact... Simple outline, simple straight outline, straightforward outline as we prepare for the table this morning. Ordinary, one, means, two, grace, three. What am I talking about? The ordinary means of grace. Ordinary. Jesus Christ, let's start out with Jesus, never a bad idea. Jesus Christ lived a life that was punctuated. By the ordinary. Yes, he was fully and truly God and fully and truly man at the same time. Yes, he went to the cross in our place. He conquered a sin and death and walked alive out of the tomb. The incarnation is this indescribable miracle. But please, let's not project Jesus out into the clouds as some ethereal figure floating around. He's alive in a body, a glorified body. He was born in a manger. He apprenticed as a carpenter. I don't know how many of you have lost an earthly father. Jesus lost his earthly father, probably at a young age. This may seem obvious, but I don't know that I've heard it spoken from up front very much. You know, Jesus had to go to bed at night. Jesus had to get up in the morning. Jesus had to wash himself. And I don't, you know, I was going back and forth whether I should say this or not, but, you know, Jesus had to go to the bathroom. Is that offensive? Jesus enjoyed people. He went to people's homes and ate dinner and drank wine all the time. He went to festivals and celebrations. And he walked around a lot <laughs> and taught a lot and told lots of ordinary stories about ordinary people. And he talked about salt and wheat and weeds and farmers and courtrooms and managers and fishermen. I have, um, I have a sneaking suspicion that if he were here today in, in the Deep South, what would he teach about? He'd teach about southern hospitality, hunting, 
trucks, fried food. Read the parables. Football, family. We could go on. Jesus values, read the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus values community and friendship. He weeps when friends die. He is deeply grieved when people are ill around him. And yes, he works healing, many healings. Well, we see here in Matthew 26 that Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body. And then he says, regarding the cup, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is said for many, for the forgiveness of sins. The disciples think that they're just selling the, they're just celebrating the Passover as their fathers did and their fathers and their fathers and their fathers going all the way back to the Passover. Slavery and, and rescue from Egypt. And Jesus now takes this simple meal of bread and wine in a completely different direction. He says, this meal points to me. This, this, this bread and this wine it points to my sacrifice. I am going to die in your place. I'm going to the, the cross in this symbolic language of, of, of bread and wine. He's talking about something that will not be symbolic. I'm going to go to the cross in your place. And this points to it. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul picks up on this, as we often read down here at the table, Paul places a little bit of a different emphasis on the Lord's table, the reason why we call it communion. Paul is saying, if you know anything about the context of Corinth, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. Well, I probably shouldn't say this, but think of a sin, any sin, and it's in Corinth. And Paul is saying this table points to the suffering and death and the resurrection and the, and the victory of Jesus Christ. But you know what else it points to? Our unity, our communion with God and with one another. It points to our unity. Here's my challenge to you today. Look closely. You will find splendor in ordinary things. Especially these ordinary things. As we meet with him at his table. Two, means. Here's a question we often ask. In fact, we've asked it during the course of this series. What's a church? You know, whether it's people or a building or someplace you go or a body of Christ. You know, sometimes people say, well, here, here's what a church is. A church is a hospital for sick sinners. Yeah, there's some truth to that. Others will say a church is a school where people are trained and instructed in, in the Bible. 
A lot of truth to that. A, a church is a counseling center where we counsel and comfort those who are grieving. We counsel those who are doing something like preparing for a wedding, marriage. Others will say a church is, is primarily about relationships and, and community. All of these things are true, but here's, a, here's another image I want you to remember. Here's another truth I want you to remember about what a church is. Our founding father of the Presbyterian Church, John Calvin, called the church a gymnasium. Where we put on spiritual muscle. A gymnasium where the body of Christ is, is built up. Think of all of, of, of Paul's... Paul, Paul must have been a sports fan. He was always referring to the Olympics and running and racing and boxing and wrestling and picking up armor and putting armor on and going into battle. He's speaking to Christians when he's saying those things. He's speaking to Christians when he's saying those things. We're not fulfilling the great commission of Matthew 28 if we're not making disciples. Muscle is built up by the ordinary means of grace. Now, I'm going to I'm going to pull out my past, been a long, been a pastor for a long time card. I can't tell you how many people that I have seen run themselves ragged and exhaust themselves looking for super spiritual shortcuts. Books are good. Conferences are good. Churches are good, pastors are good, all of those things that God gives us, but just people just wearing themselves out looking for a shortcut to growth in Jesus Christ. Working up feeling and emotion and experience and running all over the place. When God makes clear to us, it's about a pattern, it's about a rhythm, it's about a trajectory. Year after year after year, month after month. We do this every month, once a month. We read the Word every week. We preach the Word every week. It's about patterns and trajectories and and lifestyles. Those of you who know Jesus Christ, who are... Who, who know justification, who know salvation, you know, and it's, it's preached from our pulpit, and we preach it from the Word. You can't earn your salvation. It's free. We are justified. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Can't earn it. It's free. But, as uh, Ken Fairley, our men's conference speaker, said so well uh, this, this weekend, what are you going to do with it? Does your life match your lips? Where do we go from here? And I'll just... Your, your decisions matter. 
when it comes to growth in the Christian life and growth in the body of Christ and growth in Christ, what you decide to do matters. What you decide not to do matters. Not your salvation, but your growth. You can avoid, you can backslide. You can not show up. You realize that most people in most churches throughout history did not even have the opportunity to have a private devotion because they didn't have Bibles. Either they didn't have Bibles or they couldn't read or both. We live in a time where Bibles are everywhere and it's free. They're everywhere. You can get one. You realize that throughout church history, from you could probably say most of church history, people in churches like this, when they came in the doors underneath the, the roof, were not encouraged to go to God directly and pray. They were encouraged to go through a, a priest or a saint or Mary. You're invited to come directly to God. You realize that for much of church history, if not most of church history, people were not invited, Christians were not invited to come to this table. They were invited into the building or into the square to watch it from a distance and watch Jesus Christ being re-sacrificed for them at the table. And then they, they can leave, but you're not invited to the table amazing. You're invited. Remember C.S. Lewis once saying, isn't it interesting that the more the Bible is translated, the less it's read? We are, we have so much, we're so blessed. Reading someone say, so what does a church committed to the ordinary means of grace look like? First, the public reading and preaching of the word. Second, the sanctifying and assuring work of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Third, a life of prayer, privately and publicly, corporately. You know, you can tell a whole lot about a person. And, and if I ever go to lunch with you, I've done this numerous times, but I didn't tell you, I'm telling you now. You can tell a whole lot about a person when you get in their car and you, 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 you see where their radio stations are set. I've got a friend, and he's not an old guy, he's just, who lives for the Elvis channel. He was going on and on. You know, I was in the hospital. I was visiting somebody the other day, and I got out, and, and, and I turned on the radio, and Elvis was singing Amazing Grace. Well, you know, good for you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. Well, I'm... He's a, a great guy, by the way. Well, my... Admitting this, my, my radio station settings are probably an evidence of my misspent youth. Uh, right at the top is classic rock. And I was listening the other day, and, and some of you will know, for, for my money, one of the greatest writers during that period was Joni Mitchell. 
If you ever go back, Joni Mitchell, boy, she can tell a story and she could write a song. And there's a song that most people have never heard of. It's called Cactus Tree. Now, I don't know much about trees and I'm not a botanist, but she uses that term cactus tree because cactus trees look beautiful on the outside and they're hollow on the inside. It's a very honest song, beautiful song, sad song. And there's a refrain that goes throughout the song. I couldn't go with these people, I couldn't go with that person, I couldn't have that experience because I was too busy being free. I was too busy being free. And what she's saying throughout this song is, I missed out on all the good, basic, ordinary things of life because I was too busy pushing them away. Trying to be myself and find myself and be free. She was so busy being free. Don't miss the blessings that come with ordinary life and the ordinary means of grace. The Bible read, the Bible preached, praying, coming to the Lord's table. You're invited if you're a believer. Don't miss out because you're so busy being free. Finally, grace. The best and most profound and most life-changing ordinary means of grace is what? Two crossed pieces of wood. Pretty ordinary. You know, the people during Jesus' day had seen a lot of crucifixions. You know, it's strange to say crucifixions were ordinary, but they sort of were. This is what happens to you if you buck the Romans. They saw it all the time. But we are about to say together as we approach this table in the Apostles' Creed, He rose again from the dead and He conquered sin and death. We are called, we are called to live cross-shaped lives for one another. The cross gives us our salvation and our redemption, but it also gives us the blueprint for our lives. The blueprint for our actions. And you know, all of what I have just said is pictured right there. In these ordinary means of grace. The ordinary, don't miss the splendor. <laughs> the means by which we grow. And the grace displayed, the grace on display here at the Lord's table. I'll close with this. Rob, many of you know, of, of, at least know the name Robert Murray McChain. He was a young Scottish minister. He died at 30. He was engaged to be married at the time. He died. And some of you have read the, the read through the Bible in a, in a year that he has provided. Well, one of his sermons, he asked the congregation, he looks out at the congregation, and he invites them to walk up and look at the cross. 
And he says this. He's talking about Jesus. He was without any comforts of God. No feeling that God loved him. No feeling that God pitied him. No feeling that God supported him. The sun had become darkness. He was without God. All that God had been to him is now on the cross taken away from him. He had the feeling of being condemned. As when a judge says, depart from me, you who are guilty. He felt as though God was saying that to him. This is the hell that Christ suffered. In fact, he goes on, the ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And how does the father answer? He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in the sermon, he says, why? Why? How does the father answer? And then he says, in this, this account of him preaching the sermon, he looks at the church. He looks at the congregation. Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? And God says to you, for you. For his children, for sinners, my life, for yours. Lord God, we thank you for the ordinary means of grace. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for baptism. We thank you that we can meditate on your word. We thank you that this morning that we are invited to the table. And even as we're reminded here of of the, the suffering that Jesus Christ goes through for us and the victory that he has by grace for us that is all pictured and embodied in this table. Lord, I would ask that we would see splendor in the ordinary means of grace. Help us to trust how you have told us that we grow and to grow into the very image of Jesus Christ and go out and live it and tell others with our words, and with our actions. We pray all of these things in the name of him who came such a great, great distance for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.